Hi there, it's Peter Bergman with Everything You Know Is Wrong, the Radio Free Oz Daily Podcast, this for Wednesday, October 26, 2011. Well, one of the subjects that's roiling around the country today is income inequality. And that goes against the American grain because in times of income inequality, most of the poor and the crushed middle class spend their time watching movies about the rich. That's what they did during um, the Depression. More movies about the high life of the rich, people in top hats dancing on shiny floors and living in big mansions and having tiny romantic problems. Now, of course, it's watching Dancing with the Stars. Pure fantasy. Let's get out of this world that's just too difficult to bear. Well, things have gotten to the point where even that doesn't work anymore. People really care about the fact that the top 1% have tripled their income in the last 30 years. A new CBO report finds that the top 1% of earners more than doubled their share of the nation's income over the last three decades. According to the New York Times, in this report, the budget office found that from 1979 to 2007, average inflation-adjusted after-tax incomes grew by 275% for the 1% of the population with the highest income. For others in the top 20% of the population, average real after-tax household income grew by 65%. We're finally coming to understand that the tax code, etc., is all weighted in favor of the ultra-rich. It's called plutocracy. It's not something I grew up with. This is fairly new as a concept, as a, a guiding concept. Perhaps it comes out of uh, the business schools that taught greed instead of need. Who knows? Uh, perhaps it's a conspiracy that's been going on since the, um, the Reagan, it's all about me days. I don't know. I'm not much of a conspiratorialist. I think basically it came about, and this is what Elizabeth Warren says also, and I'm going to be playing a part of her speech uh, in an upcoming um, Everything You Know Is Wrong, comes from the fact that we destroyed the protections uh, that saved us from greed and criminality on Wall Street. Glass-Steagall, various other acts that were knocked down, and now these people are running wild. Well, the conservatives will tell you, hey, that 47% of the people, you know, the, the crushed middle class and the poor, they don't call them that. Well, they don't pay their share of taxes. Don't worry about income inequality. The rich pay all the taxes. Conservatives are talking about uh, the percentage of recession-era households that pay no federal income taxes. Of course, most of them pay payroll taxes and other federal taxes, not to mention state taxes. But Republicans have chosen to depict them as the free-riding half of the country. Fact of the matter, though, is that those other taxes that they, uh, they pay constitute a huge chunk of federal revenues. You know, over the 58 years preceding the Lesser Depression, the share of federal revenues that came from individual income taxes has remained fairly stable, fluctuating between 40 and 50 percent, and peaking just before George W. Bush cut those rates in 2001. The rest of the revenues have come from corporate income taxes, payroll taxes, and various other taxes to a surprising extent. The story of the last six decades is one of a shrinking burden on big business and a growing burden on workers. Why am I not surprised? Since 1950, regressive payroll taxes have grown to comprise over one-third of federal revenues. They used to comprise about one-tenth. For corporate income taxes, it's just the opposite. What used to provide the Treasury over a quarter of its revenue now provides just over 10%. You thought the rich were paying the bulk of taxes and doing their share? 
Well then, buddy. Everything you know is wrong. This is a piece by Elliot Spitzer, the former governor of New York, about Occupy Wall Street. And I thought it was so on the button that I want to read it to you in its entirety. So says Spitzer. Occupy Wall Street has already won, perhaps not the victory most of its participants want, but a momentous victory nonetheless. It has already altered our political debate, changed the agenda, shifted the discussion in newspapers, on cable TV, and even around the water cooler. And that is wonderful. Suddenly, the issues of equity, fairness, justice, income distribution, and accountability for the economic cataclysm, issues all but ignored for a generation, are front and centered. We have moved beyond the one-dimensional conversation about how much and where to cut the deficit. Questions more central to the social fabric of our nation have returned to the heart of the political debate. By forcing this new discussion, OWS has made most of the other participants in our politics, who either don't want to have this conversation or weren't able to make it happen, look pretty small. Surely you might say other factors have contributed. A convergence of horrifying economic data has crystallized the public's underlying anxiety. Data shows that median family incomes declined by 6.7% over the past two years. The unemployment rate is stuck at 9.1% in the October report, 16.5% if you look at the more meaningful U6 number, and 46.2 million Americans are living in poverty, the most in more than 50 years. Certainly, those data help make Occupy Wall Street's case. But until these protests, no political figure or movement have made Americans pay attention to these facts in a meaningful way. Indeed, over the long, hot summer, as poverty rose and unemployment stagnated, the entire discussion was about cutting the deficit. And then OWS showed up. They brought something that has been in short supply. Passion. The necessary ingredient that powers citizen activism. The tempered, carefully modulated, and finely nuanced statements of Beltway politicians and policy wonks do not alter the debate. Of course, the visceral emotions that accompany citizen activism generate not only an energy that can change politics, but an incoherence that is easily mocked. OWS is not a Brookings Institution report with five carefully researched policy points and an appendix of data. It is a leaderless movement, and it can often be painfully simplistic in its economic critique, lacking in subtlety in its political strategies, and marred by fringe elements whose presence distracts and demeans. Yet, the point of OWS is not to be subtle, parsed, or nuanced. Its role is to drag politics to a different place, to provide the exuberance and energy upon which reform can take place. The major social movements that have transformed our country since its founding all began as passionate grassroots activism that then radiated out. Only later do traditional politicians get involved. The history of the civil rights movement, the women's rights movement, labor movement, peace movement, environmental movement, gay rights movement, and yes, even the Tea Party follow this model. In every instance, visceral emotions about justice, right, and wrong ignited a movement. Precise demands and strategies followed later. Just as importantly, most of those who are critical of OWS have failed to recognize inflection points in our politics. They fail to recognize that the public is responding to OWS because it is desperate for somebody to speak with the passion and even anger that has filled the public since the inequities and failures of our economy have become so apparent. 
Will the influence of OWS continue? Will it continue to capture the imagination of the public? Will it morph into a more concrete movement with sufficiently precise objectives that it can craft a strategy with real goals and strategies for attaining them? These are impossible questions to answer right now. Could it launch a citizen petition demanding that a Paul Krugman, Joseph Stiglitz, or Paul Volcker be brought into government as a counterweight or replacement for the establishment voice of Treasury Secretary Tim Geithner? Maybe. Could OWS demand meetings with top government officials? Could it demand answers to tough questions? From the specific, explain the government's conflicting statements about the AIG Goldman bailout. To the more theoretical, why moral hazard is a reason to limit government aid is only cited when the beneficiaries would be everyday citizens. There is much ground to cover before real reform, but as a voice challenging a self-satisfied, well-protected status quo, OWS is already powerful and successful. On Wall Street, I'm a king. When I buy, the Dow explodes. When I sell, the markets tremble. So you can imagine what it feels like after a long, successful day of shafting widows and orphans to come home to my nubile trophy wife waiting for me at our mansion door in her skimpy, see-through Girl Scouts uniform and not be able to do the same to her. I can raise the market with a stroke of a key, but at home I can't keep it up. Then my little vixen slipped a tab of Semperstiff into my midnight martini and I'm a new man. So if you're tired of giving your partner the short end of the stick, turn to Semperstiff and go long on what you long for. Semperstiff is another game changer from You Bought the Pharmaceuticals. Warning, if after popping Semperstiff your erection lasts for more than four hours, screw your doctor. You Bought the Pharmaceuticals is a deniable division of US Plus. US Plus, we own the idea of America. Protesters occupying Wall Street and areas all over the world are one aspect of the great change. I think hackers are another important aspect of that new army. Well, Anonymous, which is one of the major hacktivist groups, has turned its attention from corporations to pedophiles with the news that this group has taken down multiple child pornography sites, including one of the largest known with account details of its 1,589 users being posted online as evidence. Pedophiles, beware. The incident was just part of something Anonymous is calling Operation Darknet, a move by the group to eliminate child pornography on the Tor network. Hmm, the Tor network? Well, Tor, which was originally developed as a way of protecting government communications by the U.S. Navy, now describes itself as a network of virtual tunnels that allows people and groups to improve their privacy and security on the Internet. Ah, just as we went through the tunnels looking for the Viet Cong in Vietnam, now we're going through the Tor tunnels to find the pedophiles. But the privacy and anonymity that Tor offers has been abused by child pornographers, something that Anonymous aims to correct with its new campaign. This is interesting now. These are private individuals going after a group of very ill individuals. It's a it's a social sickness, and they're taking upon themselves to do it. This is a form of vigilantism, and we may be seeing more of this on all levels. In its statement about the takedown, Anonymous says that the group identified hosting service Freedom Hosting 
as the host of the largest collection of child pornography on the internet, adding, by taking down freedom hosting, we are eliminating 40-plus child pornography websites. Among them is Lolita City, one of the largest child pornography websites to date, containing more than 100 gigabytes of child pornography. That'll keep those pedophiles up all night. We'll continue to not only crash Freedom Hosting server, but any other server we find to contain, promote, or support child pornography. Well, what if they determine that droning is a form of foreign policy pornography? Are they going to start hacking the drones? You think that's too far out to believe? Well then, my dear listeners, everything you know is wrong.